This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Claude Moraes. Claude Moraes is a British Labour member of the European Parliament and chairman of the Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs Committee. Claude, you've been a member of the European Parliament for almost 17 years now. You must have seen many changes over that time. But I want to talk about, in particular, the last 18 months since the, the Juncker Commission took office. And one of its mantras, as you know, was to do less but to do it better, which meant, uh, to some extent, a process of deregulation, maybe better regulation, fewer proposals coming out of the Commission and into the European Parliament. What has that impact has had, had on the European Parliament in terms of its workload? I think it's made the European Parliament a very different kind of place. The type of Parliament I came into in 1999 was one where there was a big emphasis on legislation. The Environment Committee was a kind of sausage, sausage machine for legislation. The Employment Committee poured out new legislation, much of it quite well known. Um, and committees like the Internal um, Market Committee uh, pioneered new consumer legislation. It was it, it really was a different time. The last 18 months have seen a, a change of culture and emphasis, but I think, in my view, that that, that has, has been a, an inevitable and proper change because you, you can't legislate for the sake of it and the European Union should only legislate on those things that... Um, it's appropriate to legislate on and national governments should be doing what it's appropriate for national governments to be doing. So um, the emphasis to switch to um, better regulation and issues of soft power, the things that the parliament can do which are non-legislative, um, has certainly seen a change in emphasis. Well, before we come on to the soft power you talk about, let's go back to the briefly to the hard power. I mean, the Parliament is is very proud of the powers it's accrued over all these years through various treaty changes and its role as a co-legislator with the Council member state governments when it comes to uh, legislative proposals. So is there a danger that the Parliament is going through some, some kind of identity crisis because it's so used to defining itself uh, and proudly so in terms of its power of co-decision and, and that is less of an important role now? Well, first of all, it, it would be disingenuous to say we're not we're not pumping out legislation. My committee has now become the, the most prolific legislative committee in the Parliament. That's the Civil Liberties, Justice, and Home Affairs Committee. And post Lisbon, this has been in, in relation to the agenda of the world. It's become the Values Committee. It, it deals with anti-terrorism, migration, the refugee crisis. Um, so for that reason, you can see that there's been an appetite for new legislation in this, this area, which has been allowed by the Lisbon Treaty. So for that reason, um, we are the big exception that proves the rule. And then there are committees like the Employment Committee, like the Environment Committee, which are legislating less. Um, so what the Commission have then done is they've said, look, let's look then at implementation, let's look at you know better transposition, and let's look at this thing of better regulation. And in the real world, what that means is, before we start legislating again and asking the member states to do things, um, let's ensure that we're um, implementing laws that are easily transposed into national laws. Let's make sure that we're regulating better. And that's easier said than done, but I do think that's where the switch in emphasis is coming from in most committees. But I have to say, not my committee, which is, which is now 
very much a still a legislative um, committee. Okay, but when you talk about the, the soft power just now, is that also including in this implementation and transposition aspect that the Parliament now should focus more on how the laws that have been adopted at the EU level are actually uh, uh, become reality at the national level? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's now a good... As time has moved on, as Parliament has matured, we have a, I think we have a, a good track record now of, of, of national laws which saw their origin in, in our directives. And I think... So we've, we we're now at the stage, 2016, where we, we see that, that, that throughput of, of legislation. Unfortunately, we also see another trend, a trend where um, member states have, have seen fit to literally not transpose whole areas of law, a trend where there's been bad transposition, bad implementation. And if, if I give you, again, an example naturally from my own area, we've just hit a refugee crisis. That refugee crisis is really worse than it should have been because people may have noticed that the European Union doesn't have a refugee or asylum policy. And yet, in the last few years, we implemented many asylum directives, reception conditions, um, asylum support office, uh, we created Frontex, um, we created um, many asylum directives which dealt with the processing of applications and so on. This may seem like new news to people, but in fact what has happened is that most member states didn't bother to transpose the law, they didn't bother to make it into an asylum law for the whole of, of the EU with the exception of Britain, of course, but where we obviously opt out of these things. We're not in Schengen. That would have created an external border for the EU. It would have created a, a baseline for um, looking at applications. And all these questions that people have of what is an economic migrant as opposed to an asylum seeker, at least we would have had the tools to do the job. But, of course, people came from Syria from Libya, and we didn't have the tools to do the job. Member states were doing their own thing. All the while, the Commission was finding countries and sending them letters and so on. So that's a very good example from my own um, period here in the Parliament. And I think that's, that's very bad lawmaking, and it doesn't matter what soft power you have, you know, that's just a very good example of where we had the foresight to see that we needed those kinds of laws. Some would opt out of those. And why is that happening? It goes to the very heart of what the European Union is. There are some areas that member states are very reluctant to have the European Union interfere in or legislate in because they feel they're still sovereign areas. Intelligence sharing, um, uh, refugee policy, um, legal migration policy. And yet these are now becoming some of the most important sensitive areas um, and I think they will tend to remain as national um, areas of sovereignty. But without some pooling of sovereignty, we will remain a European Union that can't deal collectively with many of the biggest issues that we face as a European Union. So what would be the, the role of the new role of the European Parliament and all that? Is it a way of just uh, holding people to account? Is it a way of a convening power of the Parliament? You can bring people to discuss the, uh, issues of burning interest in a kind of consensual manner, or, or what? How, do you, how does the Parliament insert itself into the, into the story these days? Well, there's a lot of this talk about national parliaments, the European Parliament meeting and so on. 
I think that may be one solution, but having worked in a national parliament as well as here in the European Parliament, I'm not sure that's always the solution. I think national parliaments in the European Parliament are in a very much competitive roles. Um, and I'm not sure all these mechanisms to have national parliament um, uh, you know, involved in, in the European Parliament, all of them actually work. We need to have a mechanism that does actually work. But you also need to have just the European Parliament being better known to the public in member states. The European Parliament's role, the European Parliament's mechanisms. I mean, mm. there are just basics that ju just do not happen. Before we talk about national parliaments, you know, yellow cards and blue cards and red cards or whatever they're going to be, you know, let's just for once see the European Parliament on TV in a member state. I mean, in Britain that just doesn't happen except for these kind of niche BBC uh, programmes that they are required by law to do on, on the European Parliament. But on mainstream issues, you never see the actual powers of the European Parliament written into a, a, a narrative. Until that happens, um, the European Parliament will be exercising quite strong powers without um, real accountability. That's where the gap, gap is created. And this is particularly strong now in, in committees which are gaining high legislative power, have, have um, a big say in what's happening in, in major um, issues, um, you know, whether it's soft power or legislative power. Again, in, in my committee, we are dealing with country issues all over the European Union of the highest sensitivity, you know, whether it's what is going on in Hungary um, and the Orban government, whether it's, you know, Poland and its new, you know, family law-orientated government. I mean, we're dealing with the most sensitive issues. Um, the emergency terrorism law in France. I mean, these are all coming before our committee. It should be seen by other countries. Um, we don't want to be exercising this kind of soft power without some accountability. And then legislatively, of course, um, you know, from so-called foreign fighters to asylum law to... Um, uh, overseeing the refugee crisis. Um, this is extremely important policy which is not reflected in the narrative of national reporting. So this mechanism has to be fixed. Okay, we're coming to the, the end of our little um, podcast, uh, Claude, but uh, since you mentioned um, red card or yellow card, whatever, national parliaments vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the European Parliament, that, that's a cue maybe to talk briefly about the referendum. We're, we're a couple of days away from the local and mayor elections and, uh, and assembly elections in the United Kingdom, um, and of course about five weeks away now, so six, seven weeks maybe, uh, from the referendum itself. Uh, there's a conventional wisdom which says that the Labour Party in its collective might will only start seriously uh, and robustly uh, campaigning on the referendum on the Remain camp, essentially, but once these local elections on the 5th of May are out of the way, what do you expect to, to happen the day after on the 6th of May? Will there be a new, uh, much more uh, coordinated and much more uh, powerful campaign by the Labour Party for the Remain side? Yeah, the Labour Party, for people who don't know our party, is essentially an internationalist party. I mean, any MEP will tell you that uh, Labour members are very internationalist at their core, they're, they're very pro-European and even those on the left who are very disenchanted by the way issues like TTIP are portrayed, not the reality, but the way that they are portrayed um, will, will be internationalist in their mindset. So the party will start campaigning after the 6th 
the issue for us is how we can mobilise people. People will be exhausted after a very big set of elections, London um, and local elections in Scotland and Wales. So it is it's a big ask, but I think what, what Labour Party members will do is they will look at the opposition, they'll look at what's on the other side, UKIP, Grayling, Gove, Johnson, Davis, all of these characters, and they will say, we want to be on the other side. And I think that classic Labour Party campaigning spirit will come through. We have the people on the ground, after all. The Tories don't. Um, they have money. Um, so this time what will happen is we will mobilise our people on the ground. The Tories will use uh, their money for the, that side of the Tory party that, that wants to be in. Um, and the Greens are with us as a party. Um, and hopefully we will mobilise all those forces. The trade unions are now all on side. Uh, virtually all on side. Um, so the issue with the trade unions and Labour now is do we have the energy after May the 5th to do it? I think you'll see party members getting out there. They'll take a rest for a couple of days and they'll be they'll be out there because they are internationalists in their heart. Club Maurice, thank you very much for your time. Mm-hmm.